This program is made possible thanks to the generosity of our listeners. Show your support at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. This week on Meet in 3, we look at the ways indoor and outdoor spaces are being reconceptualized during the pandemic to better suit new modes of living, working, and eating. It's brought a vibrancy and an energy back to the city streets that were so dearly missed during the height of the pandemic. This is about how we can grow indoors all year round uh, using proprietary technology that we've developed. How do I have someone understand, look, don't take a next to the June berries because you can eat those. That's free food. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief. With your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and Bobby Comforto. Who is my mom? Who is probably sleeping right now because I'm recording this very late for some reason. I am up too late, everyone. Um, But that is neither here nor there because today on the show, we have a wonderful human being and a good friend of mine, Janet Marcel. Uh, Janet is an interior designer and a beautiful writer um, and a beautiful person. Janet is uh, coming on the show today to talk to us about uh, an experimental heart surgery that she had in 2016. Janet worked with uh, an organization called Mended Hearts, and Mended Hearts is a national and community-based nonprofit organization that has been offering the gift of hope to heart disease patients, their families, and caregivers. Um, And Janet's going to be doing some more work um, and kind of press stuff with them in the coming weeks uh, to talk about her surgery, which at the time was, again, it was very kind of experimental. Uh, So Janet is going to talk more with us about what that meant to her at the time, what it means now, her experience with surgery and, you know, being faced with the loss of life and the loss of a certain kind of self um, and what it meant to go from one phase of her life to the next and have that kind of really crazy near-death experience. Um, What a great conversation. What a great time to spend an hour with a good friend learning more about them. Um, It was, it was really, really, really wonderful. So please enjoy our talk with Janet. And also, folks, we want to know what you're cooking. What are you, what are you, what are you eating? What are you not eating? How are you feeling? What are you doing? Uh, please reach out to us at processing at heritageradionetwork.org. That's an email address. You can shoot us an email about anything. If you, we would really like to know what you're cooking up. Um, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show. Or if you have a suggestion for an episode, a listener letter, you know, this is really like um, a community. We'd love it to continue to be more and more a community-based show. And um, you can also reach out to us on Instagram at processing underscore podcast. And yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So please, please enjoy our conversation with our dear, sweet, wonderful, graceful, beautiful, kind uh, just I, everything, <laughs> everything friend. Um, Janet is such a bright, 
shining light and a gift to this world. And uh, thank you for your time, Jay. It was really wonderful to spend time with you and enjoy our chat. And take care of yourselves and each other out there. Okay, bye. very special episode today of processing with friend of the show janet marcel janet hi hi good morning what's going on mine friend well i'm uh, i'm a little sleepier than you because i'm over here in la and i know that you're close to home <laughs> where i will soon be oh, yeah. but it's good to see your faces That's- from from the locals it's very good to see your face too yeah that's right you're in la so janet we met we like had a friend falling in love, right? Where we met, we like met at a at a restaurant that's no longer around, Prime yes. Meats, and we so were just me. kind of met each other, and it was like immediate, like I want to be your like fast butt. <laughs> yeah, jokes on them. We fell in love instead, and we've been oh yeah together ever since, which is great. Exactly. So, what's uh, what's been cooking in your kitchen? What's been going on? Life wise, food wise. Yeah, both. What have you been eating? We kind of like always want to know what, what's, you know, what's on everybody's dinner well, table or breakfast table. You know, funny you should mention that. I have been, um, you, I, I mean, I'm sure you know that I have been quite strict with the way I eat and how I eat when I'm like training for running and marathons and endurance yeah. stuff in the past. And I'm, I'm usually pretty regimented. And I, I don't think it's like pandemic related or anything like that because I know everyone was cooking at home. But in the last four months, I've just almost completely kicked off any sort of thought process whatsoever. So I run when I feel like it. And it's the first time in my life when there's like several days in a row where I just don't do anything or I take a walk. Well, not nothing, but like I'll go for a walk or just eat whatever I want. And and I feel and feel like I could look better than I have in like years, which is really interesting because I just sort of settled where I'm supposed to settle. Yeah, totally. That's amazing. And how do you how do you feel like emotionally about that? Like, good, is it good. stressful for you? No. Because I know sometimes when you're used to eating in a certain way and like training and being like, I need to like have this many carbs that I or this many, you know what I mean? Like, so when you stop doing that, it can not only be like the different effect on your body, whether positive or whatever, but, um, you know, mentally, like, where are you at with it? Are you thinking about that a lot? Is it, is it relaxing or stressful? It is relaxing. Um, it's, surprising that it's relaxing because usually I think more about whatever's happening than whatever is actually happening. But, um, I just sort of naturally started doing it. Haven't thought about it too much. It crosses my mind more in like the absence of, um, like Mm. look at all this time I'm saving, not like counting out my supplements or nuts or whatever I'm doing, but, um, it's great. I think it suits me, honestly. What what a good time with all the stress in our environment and in our world to lessen the stress for yourself. That's great. Exactly. Yeah, totally. So what, but what kind of things have you been cooking? Because you're a fabulous cook Um, and you love food. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I have three, I have uh, three stepkids who have been with their mom for the whole summer. So mealtime in our house is actually getting a little bit stressful because everyone, of course, they're all like young teenagers and everybody has their own preferences and their own limitations of what they do or do not want. And Rick eats anything that I make like at any point. So (laughs) like last night I actually made, um, 
Salmon Wellington. Um, and I, yeah, because we had our Aussie friend staying with us and he was going to make sausage rolls. So he put puff pastry in the freezer and didn't do it. So I took it out and, and I was like, I'm going to, I was going to make a strawberry tart. And then there was like salmon on the, you know, for dinner. And I was just like, this seems way more interesting. And I did the whole like mushroom thing and the white wine and the shallots. And then I, you know, tapped it all in there and let it bake. It was amazing. It it also went to like twice the size of what it should have been, which I didn't realize, but um, it was very real puffy. Yeah. That sounds so good, Bobby. That sounds like something you would really love. Salmon Wellington. I mean, me too, but I can picture you like making that tonight. I I love mushrooms and duck cell and I already left the room and took out my puff pastry. So I'm ready to go. There you go. (laughs) Exactly. It's very easy and very, very good and impressive for people who don't know better. Nice. That was amazing. So Janet, you had mentioned uh, just a moment ago that, you know, you're a runner. Uh, when did that, when did that start? When did that specific kind of exercise vibe start in your life? Um, I, let's see, 24. Um, okay. My, yeah. My sister is a very serious runner. She's, she's super competitive, not mentally or emotionally, but just like by act of how many medals she's won and things she's come, you know, involved in. But um I, you know, as I'm sure we'll bring up, was not feeling very well at that point in my life and yeah. needed some sort of pinpoint to something. And she just started taking me running with her and her feet are about, you know, two sizes bigger than mine. And I'd never mm-hmm. performed any sort of exercise regime whatsoever. And she just took me with her one day on like the West Side Highway, I think. And I had like shin splints the next day and it was awful and I hated it. And I just never stopped. Um, and she's still to this day, like the only person that I still kind of love to run with and that I can run with because she talks when we want to talk and we don't talk when we don't want to talk. And, you know, she's the same size as me and all that. So I, uh, yeah, it's, it's good stuff. You know, the thing that I think is one of the most interesting things about running, I am a runner as well. And when I first started running, I was like, wow, this is, you know, you, I still, to this day, the first mile for me, I always want to stop in mm-hmm. the first mile. Oh, and my like, block is I'm at two so miles. And people tired. are like, oh, you, and I you run go- like 10 miles or 14 miles. And I'm like, just get past the first two and then you're fine. You just, exactly. In the first mile, like I find myself always wanting to give up and I can run for, you know, a half marathon. Yeah. Um, but that never for me goes away. Like it never kind of gets easier. But when I first started running, I I remember the thing that I kept thinking, I was like, okay, this is so hard. And I got past this first like little thing. And I'm like, I could still go more. And then it was like mile two. And then I was like, I could actually still go more. And then like it was mile three. And then I was like, okay, now I'm tired. And then the next day or maybe the next month, the next week or whatever, I'm like, oh, wow, it's mile five. I can still go more. And I'm in pain, but I can go more. And then maybe like at mile five, you start feeling like it definitely, I mean, you obviously have your own opinion about this, but it goes up and down and fluctuates in difficulty, like through the miles you're running. And I actually was thinking about that this morning as a very interesting analogy to like the journey and the grieving process. It's a metaphor for life is, is getting through the resistance and it's not getting through it. It's staying with it. And then it breaks, right? You have to stay with the resistance, stay with it. And it is a metaphor for grief. You're absolutely right, Sarah. Yeah. How do you feel about that, Janet? I relate to that strongly. Um, and I, for me, that comes out often. I mean, you know me well enough. My, my primary emotions are like frustration and rage when I can't get through something. And I feel yeah. the same way, even I mean, I've been running for almost 15 years. And even now when I get tired, sometimes I get so angry, like, oh, I'm, I'm better than this. And I have to stop and like take into account that 
maybe I'm tired today. Maybe I'm, you know, whatever is happening in that particular moment and let myself have that instead of being like, I'm a world-class runner. I should be able to do this every day. And it just doesn't work that way emotionally and physically, obviously. Yeah. And the little variables, right? Like just being honest about the small kind of differences just in the world that can make your process that day more difficult. Like yesterday it was really humid in New York and I'm like on mile three of my run and I'm like, I want to stop. I'm like, I can't breathe well, you know, like this is so weird. Why can't I breathe well? And then I'm like, what did I do last night? Like maybe I shouldn't have had a glass of wine. Like, am I not stretching enough? And then I was like, it's humid out, Zara. Like yeah. it's not necessarily your fault if today is hard yeah. and it's okay to be stop today after mile three, if you want to, cause it's too hard or you can keep going. But if you really, you know, and I, again, just to bring it like I, this analogy kind of now <laughs> I'm really loving it. No, 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 the no, running run analogy, it, run but no pun intended. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, some days are just going to be hard. And I think in terms of like, even how you began, we were talking about what you're cooking, like, and not restricting yourself, just like kind of being in your body, whether it comes to what you're eating, what you're doing for your physical activity, or like your grieving process is like kind of a really big breakthrough, I think. And a really important thing in just being in the moment and being in your, in your authentic, genuine self. So can I share something about what we were talking about, about um, staying with the resistance? I learned this um, when I went to Kripalu once. And it was a yoga program um, that teaches you to hold the postures for a really, really excruciatingly long time and then watch your own inner process as you're holding the pose. And I learned about it, about the concept of expanding your capacity to bear. And I think of that that's what I apply to emotions, you know, when I work with people. It's just expanding your capacity to bear whatever's happening, the worst of things that are happening. So it really is such an unbelievable metaphor for how we get stronger as human beings through the things that we go through. So we're really talking about, you know, being able to withstand resistance and pain and ability to bear and also just kind of being where you're at naturally and authentically and that kind of, there's like a fine line there. I have an interesting story to tell about that. Mm. Um, I went to Kripalu um, some years ago and I took a particular program that was meant to hold postures for a really long time. And then afterwards you'd go into a free flow but the holding of postures was the first time I really uh, confronted that part of myself, really looked at resistance inside of myself. And you learn so much about yourself when you face your own resistance to something. But of course, we had to hold the pose, hold the pose, hold the pose. And so it, it helped me to understand the mindfulness concept of expanding your capacity to bear. And when I work with clients now in grief or any kind of trouble or difficulty we go through, we do have to withstand that difficulty, right? We have to expand and expand our capacity to be with what we're suffering with. So I learned a lot from that. And it made me think of what you were talking about, Janet. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a huge concept for me in terms of, um, I think I had to bring that full circle and have recently that it's not about what you should bear or have to bear, but what you are learning that you can bear. And that, that comes through in running as, as Zara was saying, you know, like I just stopped, you know, I didn't want to run after three miles and I turned around and went home and that, that emotion or that, decision is not something I have ever allowed myself. Like you don't stop. You just keep going until you can't go. And then, you know, maybe you have a stroke or maybe you have a nervous collapse or whatever it is. Maybe you put yourself in the hospital, but you keep going and you don't talk about it. And that was also running for me. And only recently have I been like, you know what? 
I, I felt okay. You know, I ran two miles and I used to have, you know, like my five mile minimum and you can't go less than that. And I've broken it a few times lately and I feel absolutely fine about it, like emotionally and physically. It's, it's whatever. Um, but it took me a very long time to get around to that. So what I hear you saying is that it's one thing to push yourself and expand your capacity, right? But it's another thing to ignore yourself. Correct. Yes, exactly. And you're talking about a very, a much different emotion and, and healthy way of going about it in recognition. That's an interesting way to put it, Bobby. It's one thing to push yourself and it's another thing to ignore yourself because I think that's what I'm talking about. And like, I think what we're all talking about, that's where the kind of red line is, right? And where do you fall on either side? Jen, I'm curious, where did you kind of learn that behavior? Is that familial? Is it something that was just in you? Like, is there a reason you can kind of point to why you feel like you have that kind of don't stop till you are forced to stop mentality? Um, I, I think it comes to, it's definitely familial. I'm, I'm sure it's, but it, some, some not great, some great, um, you know, work ethic is there and, and we're all, we're all pretty disciplined. I mean, there's four of us children and they're all, we're all pretty disciplined. My father's like, you know, a military Navy guy and he's a ship captain and pretty intense. And my mother keeps the household very tightly. And we, I mean, they're, they're, she's super low key and chill and laid back as you've heard me talk about a million times, but she does yeah. exactly what she's supposed to be doing. And, um, you know, it's a sense of responsibility. I don't know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, like it's, it's pretty intense stuff. I mean, it goes yeah. back a long way. Um, a strength, a strength and a weakness. Yes, both, right. Very much so. <laughs> and, and I guess that's the stuff you need to figure out for yourself later on once you've learned those habits and what's working and what's not. Yeah. So, okay. You start kind of getting into this specific kind of exercise and there's a reason folks that we're talking kind of so much about this and honing in on, aside from the fact that it's actually quite interesting, but so you started running when you were around 24, but then, you know, in your tw- in your mid to late twenties, some things kind of happened to you. Uh, particularly with your health. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah. Okay. So I'll start at the end, I guess, really. I I had experimental heart surgery um, because it it took me a very long time to figure out that I was ill. Um, And in my late twenties, it's really started kicking in. Like I'd always been a fainter throughout childhood, but nothing that would like give my parents pause or cause any sort of like crazy testing. And then as I got into my mid twenties, um, it, it got to the point where it was, I, I, I really wasn't functioning at all. Um, you know, maybe when I was about 27 or 28 and I was working a lot and entertaining a lot and I was married and there was a lot going on and I was basically just collapsing constantly, you know, crashing my car and uh, falling on subway platforms and, um, you know, leaving meetings to lie down in the hallway and left my work. And I was basically, basically just not a functioning human. Um, always in and out of hospitals and emergency rooms. And it was, it was very, very intense and stressful. And I was running through all of it um, because it turns out that this heart condition I had was extremely um, bradycardia, which is an extremely low heartbeat. And um, I could run. That's one of the reasons that made it so difficult to diagnose me because I could run and run and run and never stop. And it was, it was the, I was in crazy good shape. I was super thin. And it was like the only thing, the only time I felt better. And then when I stopped running was the huge problem. And I'd end up in the emergency room like a couple of days later after a marathon or a big training session or something. And um, my poor husband had to like peel me off the floor, you know, more times than I can count, as did my sister. Um, but it turns out that that was what was keeping my heart rate up and probably what was getting enough oxygen to my brain. Um, wow. So I felt great when I was running and everyone was like, you're killing yourself, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I, I, I don't think so. I think it's keeping me around. Um, but yeah. then you have to stop running eventually. 
Wow. That's actually also in itself a great metaphor <laughs> and, a, and an amazing like last line for the beginning chapter of a, of a book. <laughs> also, we should mention Janet's an amazing writer and author. Um, so it is no surprise that you have a very kind of cinematic style of like describing the things in your it's, life. It's You're just grandiosity. <laughs> <laughs> so when did it kind of all kind of come to a head? When did you find out about the heart condition? Um, well, after years and years of being mysteriously ill and lots of people thinking that I was crazy, which is its whole other segment of like totally. PTSD. Um, I was diagnosed with nothing really just like you have this crazy condition. It's genetic. We don't know. It's like a trick knee. And then it happened. They thought I had epilepsy for a while. And so they did all those tests because I, I have seizures when I pass out. It's very dramatic. And, um, then when I was, let's see, it was 2016 that I had the surgery. So four years ago. And it was like, as soon as they hooked me up and did the proper machines and had very dramatic reactions, they were like, oh, it's not your brain, it's your heart. And the surgery, which was experimental and totally crazy. And I had to sign a huge contract, put it through like right away, like two weeks later. And it happened very, very fast. And the switch was like overnight, which is also nuts. Um, but that was 2016. Yeah. What did they actually do in the surgery? They, okay, so there, there was a, there's a new piece of technology um, called a leadless pacemaker. So, you know, usually traditional pacemakers, they have to cut you open, they put it in your heart, or they put it in your chest, and you can see the box, and it's this whole thing. And it's a dual chamber. And I only needed a lower chamber because I, I don't go up, I only fall. So I was one of the first candidates um, in, in, in the world who was able to be eligible for this and, and to also receive it. And so they stick a little tiny, like vitamin sized thing up your femoral artery into your heart and implant it. And there it sits now. And uh, I'm not connected to anything other than like the MacBook in my doctor's office, which is super wild. Um, wow. but, uh, yeah. Do you feel like you have a new part of you that you have a relationship with? I mean, are you conscious of it? I, I am, not, I think about that a lot, actually. I, I am not physically conscious of it very often. Sometimes at night, I can feel it when my heart wants to slip low and it kicks it back up and it's a little uncomfortable. But the emotional side of it, it I really had to just relearn. I, I felt like I was actually living, not a new part of myself, but actually living myself for the first time ever. Um, and after being alive for three decades, it was pretty intense because I always felt that something was there's nothing I can even relate it to, but you just, you're born and you know that something is different or off or you have to find it, or maybe you've met, never met your birth parents or whatever that thing is, it's always there. And I had that thing. And of course you don't know that you have this thing until you figure out what the thing is. And then they fixed it. And I was like, this is what I'm supposed to feel like. This is what a human person feels like. Um, And it was really intense. Like a rebirth. A rebirth. Yes, yeah. very much so. And yet, and to answer your question, I am still getting to know that person every day, all the time. And how has that person changed other than like your physical feeling? Like, how did you feel emotionally kind of different? Like, how, how has that journey been going in an, on an emotional level since the surgery? It, it has, well, it has had wild fluctuations, which is interesting because in the beginning, I it was really just like overnight switch. And I felt as though I were invincible. And like, I had all this fear and all this pain and all this, these things I couldn't do for so long. And then all of a sudden I was just like, I'm going to do everything, you know? And I was sort of like a, you know, 
I don't know if you remember this part of my life, but it was probably right, right after I met you or right before I met you. And I was doing all sorts of like daredevil, crazy stunts, extreme sports, whatever. And I, I felt like I was Superman. And then it left. And I, I had a, an incident that I um, actually did faint. And it was the first time I fainted in two years. And I was training for a really big race. I was doing a race in Bhutan. And so I had to travel to the Himalayas. And a month before or three weeks before that, I was in South and Central America on a boat trip with my brother um, for like three weeks. And I was training super hard. And I, in, I was in Nicaragua. And I think I'm, I'm 100% positive. I got Zika. Like I had, it was like during a Zika scare and I had a, you know, a huge, huge mosquito infestation in in the trail in Nicaragua. And I had the red eyes and all the stuff. And it was very scary. And I was home on a different flight than he was. And I passed out on that flight and it scared me more than anything has ever scared me since because it took me back. Yeah, the exactly. PTSD. Yeah. Exactly. And and it was on the plane and it was like a you know, very tumultuous flight and, and I woke up on the floor and I just I almost thought that that broke me worse because it was taking me back to like years of just thinking that I would never have to feel that again. And then it just punched me in the face. Um, and since then, it's been like up, up, up and down, I guess is the only way to describe it, really. Um, you know, I was very, very sick this winter, uh, whether it was coronavirus or not, probably, you know, I had the flu and then I was sick again. And that's probably what it was. And it was the first time that my, my partner now who I've been with for years saw me in that state where he was, he saw what was happening to my body and taking me back to that place. And I was like, you know, I I think we got to go to the hospital, you know, and listening to the doctors and the cardiologists talk to my people in New York and, and to bring somebody into your life in that way. And I was like, well, if you're going to know, you got to know, you know, this is what it looks like. And I know that I look like I'm the bionic woman 90% of the time, but that 10% of the time is terrifying for everyone around me. So here's what that looks like. And me as well. Yeah. You know, I have a question. So I think that, um, hmm, I don't even know quite where to start this, but I know, from my own life experience and from speaking with other people who have battled certain things like depression or, or whatever, that sometimes when we go back into our kind of natural state, which may not be necessarily healthy, whether it's depressive or, or going back to, you know, maybe being in a bad relationship because it fuels certain bad feelings you have about yourself as a kid. And you know, you don't really, it's not good for you, but it feels like a safe cave or something. Cause you're so used to it. So I'm wondering if there is a, for you in that kind of same vein, was there any kind of grief in, uh, losing the sick version of yourself? Because that had been the version of yourself that you had known for almost three decades. And while it might've been sick and not, not living in a way that like was optimal, um, it was still what you knew. Did, do you feel any kind of longing or grief for that person? Yes and no. Um, Publicly, no, because it was, it was, I was never known as the sick person. Like I always had something going on, but I wasn't like I was, you know, the child that had cancer and that became the family's identity. You know, it it wasn't anything like that. I worked so hard to keep it hidden from everyone to the point where it was damaging many of my close relationships. And I was cutting off contact with people, including my husband. And so it wasn't like I was trying to take time for myself and be like, be gentle with me. I'm sick. You know, like it, it was like the opposite of that. And you so didn't when, identify with it. Not you at didn't all. Identify, yeah. Not at all. And, and then when I was better, I think privately the behaviors come back and 
for sure it's a comfort. And, and I have to remind myself, like, this is something that happens to you. You know, she's still there. This, this girl is still there. And, and it, 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 once I remember that, that I know this person that is not feeling so well, it, it's, it, it is a comfort. But as long as I try to pretend she doesn't exist, it's, it's a lot harder. Cause then it rushes I, was li- I was listening to an interview with Bruce Springsteen last night. Uh, he Which was one? on uh, Colbert. He was on Colbert. Oh, wow. And he had the most wonderful metaphor. He talked about the different parts of ourselves getting on in the, in the car and how we just have all these ages of ourselves. I call it layers of ourselves, but he talked about it. Each of the ages getting in the car with us. And mm. so then he said, but who's driving the car, mm. you know, and oh it's, gosh. it's a psychological principle that I work with. I just love the way he said it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what you're saying is that, you know, we all have that. We have all the layers of us, all the ages of our experience. It's with us all the time. But who's the one driving the car? Who's the one in charge? So interesting. Yeah. I feel like yeah. he's got a bright future ahead of him, that Bruce. What's his last <laughs> name again? How do you pronounce that? Springstein? <laughs> sounds like a thoughtful kid. guy. Yeah, it sounds like he's got a real bright future. Interesting. Mom, we were talking this morning about something. I mentioned that... Um, I was talking to Bobby about how I'm so into Audible now. This is not an ad for Audible. However, it could be. Audible, call <laughs> us. Um, I was talking to Bobby this morning about how I like. I don't have a lot of uh, time to to read, but it's hard for me to sit down and like read books nowadays because I don't ride on the subway. And I, you know, while I might have time, I don't necessarily feel like I can sit down and read. So I've been getting really into like listening to books and. Um, a book that I just put on my list was this book called Necessary Losses. And I started talking to Bobby about it. And then we started kind of having a conversation in that vein. And Bobby, you were saying some really interesting, you brought up some interesting points in, in regard to that. Well, first of all, I, I was saying that I'm going to reread the book because I think for our yeah. podcast, it's absolutely necessary because what we're seeing, Janet, which is interesting, I don't know how many of the podcasts you've listened to, but all different types of things are losses. You know, we had somebody that had a fire and you're talking about your illness and somebody that lost a business. And obviously we have had a lot of people that had losses of family members, but all through our life, we have losses. You know, it's the Buddhist concept too, of that that's where our life is. You know, it's just a series of losses and how we adapt to them. But I think we're going to both read that or listen to the book <laughs> together. And then we, it would be a really good thing to talk about. Maybe we'll make it a special, um, uh, podcast where we just talk about that book. Definitely. But you had brought up some points like we're just, we riffed off of that and you had. Well, what I was saying is that I did my, um, my master's thesis was on the psychological aspects of physical illness because at the time I was uh, finishing up my master's in uh, social work and I was physically sick. So I was very interested and that's what I used as my subject. So I talked about a few things um, with you today, Zara. I was talking about how we somehow learn to hopefully love our disease Obviously, we don't want it, but it has so much to teach us. It's such a teacher. And I guess it's a good juncture to ask you, Janet, what have you learned from your disease? Um, hmm, that's, a, that's a very current and present question. Um, it has definitely taught me to step back and look at the way that you are treating the people in your life while they are grieving, while you are grieving, how they are grieving for your grief, all on all of the above, because I, I completely shut my life down and, you know, 
there were lots of things that contributed to, to, to my divorce, but like I cut that man out of my life completely. Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't let him come with me. Wouldn't let my parents come with me. Nobody knew what was happening. And they were seeing the, the, the mass, you know, destruction that was piling up. And obviously that I was very unwell and, and I was just shutting everyone out. And that was, I can't imagine how difficult that must've been. And, and I remember it was almost two days, I think it was two days before my surgery. And I wouldn't tell anyone what hospital I was in, wouldn't tell my parents uh, exactly what dates I was going in. And I was like, I can do it. I can do it. And then I, my father got me on the phone and he was pleading with me. Like, you got it. You got to tell, you got to let us come down to the city. And I, and he started crying on the phone and he was like, this isn't about you. This is about me. Like I'm your father and I want, I, I need to be there. My, my child is having heart surgery. Like you have to let us come. And it was then that I was like, I'm not helping anybody by being a strong man. I'm, I'm hurting everyone around me. And that, and that persists even now, you know, when I see Rick, me balancing like their emotions with my emotions, like somebody who wants to help you so badly and they don't know how, and it can make them angry or it can make them tired or it can make them sad and to see you in pain and me trying to learn new speech patterns to be like, this is what's happening to me. Um, this is how you can help me. This is what is not helping. Um, and, and, and try to maintain that balance of normalcy, um, of normality so that, so that everyone feels a little bit better. Um, because it's not helpful the way I was doing it before, but not at all. It sounds like the epitome of the strength and the weakness, right? Again, that and your it's strength awful. and your ability to handle things is so much your strength and your unbelievable endurance, but it's also that weakness of, yeah, I'm sure that. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a snapping rabid coyote that doesn't feel well. And so it just attacks anything that comes near it. Like that was me all the way. Right. Well, I mean, I think that's interesting in talking about like loving your disease and needing, not needing certain losses, but, or having them be quote necessary, but just having like what you do get out of that, how being, you know, shaken like that shakes certain things loose that you might not need anymore or shakes them into place. And like, you know, finding, it's very difficult and it's a big ask I think for people who are not ready and maybe people will never be ready. But when you do become ready to feel the, the change of the loss that happened, right? Like no one, it's funny when I was in that really bad accident, um, I was lucky enough to get some money from it because, you know, I was in a vehicle and I remember at the time and even still people would be like, Oh, I wish I got in that accident. Right. Like I wish that had happened to me. And like, you never ever would sit and be like, realistically be like, I really wish I got, I'm like really glad I got in that accident. I really wish that would have happened, but you do find, and believe me, the, the bit of money that I got from after it was the least important thing that I gained from that experience. You know what I mean? I learned Mm -hmm. so much about perspective and, about not wasting time and about patience and about seizing the moments that we have, the you know, but, um, it's interesting, I guess to, I went on a bit of a tangent there, but in terms of like being ready to find out like what you can gain, you know, you might not get there right away or you might, but when you do get there, there is a lot to learn. There is a lot. Well, to we learn. can't rush our lessons. They come when they're ready. Right. Well, it can be a hard thing to say to someone like, and you would never want to say that to someone who's in grief or has just gone through a loss. Be like, well, you, there's going to be a lot to learn here. Oh, you're learning so much here. Look at you. Look at you learning. (laughs) Look at you lucky learner. This is so good for you as a person. No. Yeah. You're going to really thrive. No, you would never want to say that. And you would never really want to hear that. But the truth is, is that every single thing 
down to, you know, the way we decide to step out of our apartment, down to the people we pick to be in our lives, down to the things that we can't really control affect us and change us. And when we are ready, if we want to absorb that, I'm being very ginger about talking about this because I don't want to make it feel like pressure on anyone that they have to learn something from their experience. But if you're ready, you know, there is a lot to learn. And it seems like this experience really was a big, you know, milestone in your life. Um, a big marker for change. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I also really this day. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and I I also really connected with what you're saying about you know, it's also something I think a lot of people who have experienced grief and loss, and illness, um, go through a lot with the people in their lives. And you're talking about your dad and about the people in your life who wanted to be there for you. It's hard to balance, I think. And I'm curious to know what you guys both think about this: your own autonomy and your personhood, and being like, I just have this one life and this is how I feel like I want to be and this is my I'm in pain physically or mentally or emotionally and this is how I need to exist and then balancing with that with being like well how can I actually try to understand other people you know and are other people asking too much from me are they wanting to help for their own reasons to feel gratified maybe is that terrible maybe you know and it's this big kind of compromise between that it does, it does give you that lens into yourself, but also other people, because it, you know, I hate to have the old adage of situations like that really show people's colors, but it, it does. Like you really see how people behave with you and how they, their love is shaped by this, this part of you um, and how your relationship is, is, you know, adapting to, to something that takes over your life in such a way. Um, and it's, it's helpful to, to pay attention to that, I guess, for lack of a better yeah. I think what it is there's so much fear around it. There's so much powerlessness yeah. around it. And we all respond differently in fear. And we also progressively respond differently. So we may have one immediate reaction to pull away. And then there's feelings of wanting attachment. There's, it's just a back and forth kind of thing. But there must have been so much fear. Did you feel a lot of fear in your experience? Up until the end, yes. Yes. Um, I, I was just nothing but fear. I, I was so, my entire life was just one block of, of terror all the time because I was, I was that ill and I just was not, I was obviously not thinking clearly. And every single moment of my life was, was on, on the line, on the fence all the time. And I eventually towards the end, you know, who knows if I'd be alive or not, you know, obviously no doctor's going to say that, but I, I was definitely getting to, to an end point there. And I was so tired that, um, I mean, at the end, my, my heart was stopping and, you know, I, I was resuscitated several times and, and it was, it was, it was not, not great and still trying to live a normal life, you know? So there was that. And, and the subway was terrifying. Driving my car was terrifying, all of that. And then by the end, I just wasn't scared anymore. I was so tired. And, and you really do have that moment where you're like, can you just get this over with? You know, not, not, not in any, like, I'm going to end things kind of way, but in a, like, I can't do this anymore. I'm so tired. And when they, and when they offered me the experimental surgery, I was like, I don't care. Great. Sure. Like I was so done by that point. Well, you were running. You remind me of Forrest Gump. He was just funny. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Yeah. You're almost like Forrest Gump in every, in every way, honestly. Right? Sitting I here. Know. I resemble <laughs> him immensely. I know. <laughs> when you first logged on, I was like, T. Hanks? Is that you? <laughs> is that Hanksy? It is. Is that my boy, well, Hanks? I, I, wish, I wish the listeners could see Janet now because you look so healthy and so beautiful and so vibrant. <laughs> really, very and vibrant. so wonderful that heart, heart um, 
you know, the understanding of what you can do with the heart is amazing. There are just so many different things. And you had experimental surgery. So are they using this with other people now? They are. They are. And I, I think um, they actually called me recently because a couple of years ago, when I when I performed the procedure, it was not FDA approved. It was a clinical trial. I had to sign a huge contract, all that stuff. And um, I was really, you know, they, they said, we can't call you a cure, but you're as close to a cure as we can say. And um, it was a huge success for me, but it wouldn't, it won't be for a lot of people because my case was very extreme. So a lot of people that are having a moderate condition are going to have moderate results. And I was like one end of the spectrum to the other. Um, and then it was FDA approved about two years ago. And they called me recently to be like, hey, there's two problems with this. One, people don't really know how they're ill, why they're ill, you know, look at how long it took you to find out that this was the issue. And secondarily, um, they don't know about this technology or that this technology can be used for them. They don't know to ask their doctors. Maybe the doctor doesn't know, you know, I had a top tier level of, you know, physicians and not everybody does. So they're, they asked my help to get the word out again in terms of like, Hey, you know, people, um, fainting all the time, you know, whatever, whatever your issue is, um, ask those questions. So they are helping people and hoping to help more. Um, and I think they're trying to make it so that it's not, it's not always going to be this dicey, crazy procedure. The point is, is that it's so much less invasive than a traditional one and that they will be able to just dip in and out and that it's not this whole big thing. Um, right. Can you tell us the name of the, um, illness disease that you had? again? Um, well, I had bradycardia, which is really more of a symptom um, and, and, and crazy low blood pressure. So the combination for me is what kept me dropping out. But no, I mean, just, just genetics, really, they, they, it was more of a condition than anything. There was no diagnosis. Um, they were like, yeah, you know, you have weak knees or, you know, trick ankles or whatever it is. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And what about food through this whole time? Tell us more about, you know, for um, you. <laughs> well, that that's, you know, Part of part of my relationship with food is it's it's always been incredibly positive. Like I, I know that I made it sound as though I'm somewhat regimented in the beginning, but that all comes from a good place. Um, I mean, my OCD more than anything. But um, <laughs> I have always found my solace, like most people in, or a lot of people, in in preparing food, and especially when there was a time that I was cutting people out of my life emotionally, the only way that I could show them that I cared for them. You know, if I, if I love you or I'm sorry, or I miss you, you know, I couldn't make the phone call or I couldn't write the letter, but I could make you a pie and leave it on your doorstep and run away and not say anything. And, you know, there's like <laughs> one person in the world who they know wouldn't be doing that. So yeah. that, that was like my, that was my hugging for a while when I, when I didn't want to see people or get close to people. So, but that, that 1000% comes from my mom. Um, she, you know, talk about not knowing you know, exactly what to do for somebody in that moment and, and figuring that out in like a slow, peaceful way. She's just the classic, like, what can I make you to eat? You know, like, and even if you don't want anything, you know, leave it at your doorstep, what your whatever. Um, so she's great with that. And, and she also, you know, I was raised on a lot of property upstate, fruit trees, huge gardens. And so, you know, she would, she's a very organic lady in, in every way. And she would like, we didn't take Pepto-Bismol. She would put lemon balm in hot water, or, you know, whatever it was from the time I was a child. So she was always doing things that are now considered like new agey. And she was just, you know, always had been that way. So I, I'm fairly inventive when it comes to ingredients because I saw her prepare things that way. Hmm. Well, we, have a self -help, we have a self-help group going for people who 
uh, can't help but make something to for food when somebody's hurting. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Your mom can join, and you yeah. can join. Yeah, that's the lasagna great. squad. Um, <laughs> what were some of the things that either she made or that you were making yourself, or you found comforting during the times of when you were recovering, <clears throat> or when you were, you know, in your illness? Well, she, um, both of us were, uh, everyone in my family are big readers and big researchers. So we, I think that she, when I was ill, was feeling very helpless and very much at a loss like everyone else. And so she would, and I would as well, read and research a lot of what might help me. I was feeling this way. What is a natural way of approaching that? So she's got a million, you know, like 1970s cookbooks where you like figure out the ingredients and go from there out of like mushroom bark or whatever. But she would also look at, um, you know, I remember we've, we found a recipe. I wanted to eat more sweet potatoes because I'd read that they produce serotonin and melatonin. So I was having problems sleeping and okay. So, so what can we make with sweet potatoes? And we had a, a Japanese exchange student when I was younger that I fell in love with. Her name was Noriko. And she, sent us all sorts of gifts. And one of them was a a cookbook with a recipe for um, pureed sweet potatoes and brandy and Japanese chestnuts with whipped cream. And it was like, it was like mind blowingly delicious. And at the time I was a child and I was like, this is a sweet, you know, it's a potato and you're this American kid and you're not, you know, you're not filled with cultural influence at this point. And It was, I didn't know that something, you know, the humble sweet potato could be this like beautiful, (laughs) exotic, like Japanese dessert. It was outstanding. Humble sweet potato. Uh, You know, whatever. So um, things, things like that. So that was definitely one of my favorites. And I, I make that even to this day. Um, but please oh, make it next time you food. come here. I will. Sounds good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, but always, always the fresh fruits and, and, and what's that? Me? Oh, I didn't say anything. Oh. Okay. Oh no. I was just oogling and ogling <laughs> at your tales of delicious brandy and Japanese sweet potatoes. That's yeah, it's a good one. Amazing. I might have to make that tonight. Um, when did you feel like you could kind of cook again? Like how long did it take you? And do you remember anything about like the first kind of things maybe you made for yourself? When I was well, mm-hmm. um, yeah. well, I wasn't eating that much, you know, I, I, I had lost all sense of appetite and, um, my sister still makes fun of me because she brought me to, you know, the crazy procedure that eventually made them decide I needed this surgery. And I, it, my heart stopped for two minutes in the hospital and I, I, you know, I, it, it, they call it a pause. I love that. They're, when they told me afterwards, yeah. they were like, your heart paused for two minutes. I was like, can you explain exactly what that means? But she, wow. you know, I wasn't going to take anybody with me to the hospital that day. And at the last minute I decided she could come with me and, and boy, am I glad that she did because I would not have made it home otherwise. And, mm-hmm. um, she was in my apartment. She lived down the street from me in Brooklyn. And she was like, do you have food in the house? You know, like, what, what, like, what are you going to eat today? I'm going to stay with you. And I was like, no, 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 get out. And, and I was like, I have a fridge full of food, whatever. And at the time I meant it, I really did. And there was literally a bottle of Pellegrino and a bowl of grapes. And, and, and I was like, that's, you know, and you know me well enough to know, I mean, we eat, we eat a lot yeah. and, and we love yeah. it. And at the time that's where my mindset was. So I was like, oh, plenty of food to last me through the day. Um, yeah. So, so to be able to, and also I was avoiding people. So to be able mm-hmm. to feel well and have people come back into my house again and cook big meals and entertain like I had formerly. Um, I mean, s- simple, simple stuff, like always produce forward. I mean, you were asking me about chickpeas yesterday. I, yeah. I mean, a, a good spicy roasted chickpea on a kale salad is like my number one. Like I could eat that every day forever. Yeah. Just like warm chickpeas. 
I like oh, I love vegetables. chickpeas. Yeah. You love root vegetables? I love root vegetables. I love like warm, squashy things, roasted things. I roast apples and grapes a lot with the root vegetables. And then I put Ooh. them on like on top of kale and then it all melts in and becomes like this half warm, half cool salad thing. I like that a lot. Oh, yum. Yeah. yeah. I've been getting really into doing something in the summer times, which I think I made probably the last batch of it last night, but it's like tomatoes and leeks. And those are the like most important parts, fresh tomatoes and leeks. And then they can have kind of anything in it from there. So last night I put some chickpeas with it and some of the last string beans that are kind of showing up for the season. And mm. it was so delicious, but that all like warmed together, like the warm melty tomato with like the melted leeks and like garlic and oh, and I put and celery is another thing because I love mushy cooked, long cooked celery. Yeah, brazy stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I do, I do miss your Italian flavors. Like I'm not gonna lie, that that Thanksgiving Mwah! at Bobby's house. I just... where, yeah, I mean, just like unbelievable the 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 blowout recipes that you put together. Was that last year or the year before? Two years. Two, two years ago. Yeah, okay, right. I think it was ago. two years ago. Yeah, that Thanksgiving we had that that was Italian Thanksgiving. That was delicious. Yes. Was that yes. that was two years ago? Gosh, what is going it, on with time? I I think it was two. It was a while ago. I feel I feel like it was. <laughs> it feels like it could have been right, a right. decade it's been ago. Some time. Who knows? <laughs> How long have I been in this room? What is going on? <laughs> so what are you going to do for this Thanksgiving, Janet? That is a great question for me and everyone else. Um, I mean, you know, as I mentioned, we do not have the kids here this year. So we'll, we'll, we'll just scratch that right off the table. Uh, and then, I mean, maybe my sister's going to come out because she, she, she could just stay for a while and not have to go back. And, um, you know, my niece Brooke is in San Francisco, so maybe we can all sort of do like a little coastal thing, but I won't be going far. And I, I hope that I will be the one cooking because we just moved into a new house and the kitchen's amazing. And <gasps> like, but I don't know. I mean, Zara, just, just like you, I like to do a theme, you know, like mm-hmm. what one Easter I did, you know, all Middle Eastern food. Cause I wanted to be like super indigenous and I just did like yeah. all, all like one type one style so i want to stay in that zone and i don't know what that zone would be yeah like classic Mm. thanksgiving well please update us let us know okay so at the end of every episode we ask the same question i'm very curious to hear your answer um if you could give yourself one piece of advice your younger self at the beginning of like this experience and for you i guess wherever that beginning of this experience begins for you um with your grief experience what would that what would that be what would that piece of advice be? It's a great question. Um, I would say slow down. Mm. Slow down or you will be forced to slow down. Mm. And something else will slow you down. But it's better if you can make the choice for yourself first. Totally. Well, that's very, those are very powerful words. And, you know, knowing you, you are someone who is so always like, go, go, go and very intense in that way. But you do seem very balanced. And I've only known you since post-surgery. So I didn't know the former Janet, but you are someone who I think has a lot of balance and a lot of grace. And seeing you today in your apartment and you just, you know, first of all, the sun is glowing on you and you just look, and Bobby said this before, vibrant and you are a really vibrant person. So I think that those parts of your personality that are go, go, go. And so energy based, um, and has, and that have so much forward motion, you know, have like 
been able to keep illuminating your spirit. And maybe that's very heady, but I believe that about you. You're just a very spirit filled person, you know, and like Bobby was saying all along, like, um, you know, our greatest strength is also our greatest weakness. And it seems like the strength part of, of that part of your personality has really like led you to this place where you are now, which seems. Yeah. I, um, well, I'm I'm very lucky. I, I have reserves and they, and they, they keep filling up and, whether where wherever that comes from, I I am very happy to have that and very lucky to have that. And I I had good choices, you know. I had the best choices in front of me. It, it was a lot of it was just in front of me to take, yeah. which is very helpful. So I always say, suck up the good stuff. So just we yeah. all have to keep doing yeah. that. We gotta suck up because that's our reserves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're really good at that, Bobby, sucking up the good stuff. I whenever <laughs> I think of you in general, but particularly after saying that, I think about watching Bobby eat a lobster. And it's like, <laughs> it's like I don't even know what to compare it to. It's like just watching like it, like a human, like thorough, like, very <laughs> thorough, but in the best possible way, like it's sucking up the guts, getting all the parts yeah. out of the most delicious, special, yummy thing. And don't you know, waste it. Make- New T-shirt, suck up the guts. <laughs> suck up the guts. It's mm-hmm. good. And everyone good. will know what that means. Right. Exactly, right. yes. Right. It will not be confusing to anyone. Um, it was so nice to talk to you, Janet. Really, like, not happy. only to talk to you, but to see you. you. Thank you. Look at your beautiful face. It's just, and also, you have some beautiful artwork behind you. Yes, yes, I do. We have a house filled with art. Yeah, gorgeous. So we're going to give some links to some of your incredible writing and some places where people can check out some of your work. Um, You're just, we didn't really mention this quite enough, but just such a gifted writer and have written uh, about your experience with this and other forms of of grief and tension in your life. And uh, I hope that everyone goes, well, again, we're going to put the links to your work, but definitely check out Janet's writing. She's amazingly talented. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. I love you. Yeah, yeah, I love Miss you both. <laughs> Take care. Okay. Bye. All of us at HRN have been keeping busy, despite working and recording from home. This fall, we're proud to announce new shows on the network that each bring important and enlightening stories to listeners around the world. While the world is in turmoil and the future of our country is uncertain, there are certain constants that help keep us going. For us, food and storytelling are essential. While we can't come together in person, food podcasts from HRN provide a virtual table we can all gather around. Bringing exceptional stories to your ears and keeping you informed on the ever-changing political and environmental issues of our time is integral to our mission. At a time when the world around us is rapidly changing, HRN is committed to being here for our listening community, and we need you to be here for us. Join our table and help ensure the future of food radio by becoming a member of HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make a contribution. Check out the latest additions to our lineup while you're there. You can see all of our series at heritageradionetwork.org slash new show. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. 
We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.